Hey everyone, this week on the show, Ryan welcomes special guest Scott Sauls, and they talk about the need for us as Christians to live better and love better in our everyday, not just on Sundays. The actualization of self is fundamental to Western thinking right now. It's not self-denial, it's self-actualization. It's not deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. It is deny my neighbor if I have to take up my comforts and follow my dreams. You know, that's the creed of the West. Hey everyone, so good to be with you. My name is Ryan and I'm really excited about this episode ahead as we have pastor and author Scott Sauls with us. Today we're looking at his book which comes out tomorrow called Irresistible Faith and some of the questions that come out of that are, what does it mean to live as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of him in this post-Christian world today? Take a listen. All right, well, today on this episode, we have a very special guest. His name is Scott Sauls, and he serves as a senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, which is a multi-site church in Nashville, Tennessee. And Scott writes weekly at scottsauls.com. You can find more information there. And Scott has written four books, Jesus Outside the Lines, Befriend, From Weakness to Strength, and his latest, Irresistible Faith which will be available tomorrow, January 22nd. Scott, so great to have you with us. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be with you. Really looking forward to tomorrow. You must be looking forward to tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it feels like we've been on this project for a long time, so it, it's fun to sort of give birth to a new thing and hope that it benefits a lot of people. Yeah, that's great. We'd love to hear actually from you. Where did you come from? What's your story? What are you about? What has been kind of the trajectory of your life? And what's God been doing in your life for the last number of years? Yeah, great. Well, uh, I, I guess I'll start now, start current, and then work backward. I'm currently the lead pastor of, uh, like you said, a multi-site church called Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, Tennessee. Came here by way of New York City, where we were for uh, several years. I, I worked alongside Tim Keller, who's probably known to some of your guests, and Tim is, has been a, a mentor of sorts to me and a formal mentor uh, for upwards of the last 20 years. And so, so much of my worldview and ministry philosophy and approach to things is really indebted to his leadership and uh, his impact in my life. So he's probably the, the number one influence still living. And then before that, we planted two churches. Uh, one was in uh, Kansas City area of the Midwestern United States, and then the, uh, the other was in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm married to Patty, two daughters. Abby's 20. Uh, she's a college student now. And Ellie, 16. She's a high school student. They're both juniors, one in high school, one in college. And uh, let's see what else. I did not grow up in a home that, that identified with Christ as Savior. I came to faith through friendships and through a lot of my own struggles with doubt, uh, you know, to the, you know, the audience of your podcast and the name of your podcast. I, I went through a very, very significant season of doubt, which I, I think I'm really indebted to that season for having the depth of conviction and belief that I do now about the things that I do revolve my life around now. So look forward to talking to you about this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear some of that. And even talking about your book, Irresistible Faith. You know, you, as you even mentioned, this season of doubt as a refiner of maybe conviction and belief. 
And I'm curious, how has that or where does irresistible faith come from? How has that impacted some of your writing in this? Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the climate that we're in, where for some fair, very fair reasons, and, and for some, I think, unfair reasons, Christianity is sort of broad brushed as a discredited movement. In the West, especially, you know, Christianity, I think, is sort of stereotyped or understood as sort of a, a group of separated against the world, holier than thou, judgmental, narrow-minded, none of their ideas are current, you know, homophobic, anti-this, anti-that. And that's just not my experience. I, I mean, I've been a follower of Christ for, oh gosh, almost 30, well, maybe a little bit more than 30 years now. And I, I've never experienced that description of Christianity as the norm? Uh, have I seen expressions of that, I think, uh, inaccurate version of Christianity? Of course I've seen expressions of it, but it's not what I witness most of the time and what I experience when I'm around people who identify as followers of Christ. But, but the book is written, I think, to maybe provide a different narrative on Christianity and also hopefully some inspiration and some tracks to run on for people who want to follow Christ well out in the world uh, in a way that flexes both the muscles of conviction and compassion and, you know, seeking to be the best kinds of neighbors, the best kinds of colleagues and bosses and employees and best kinds of friends. And even, you know, to Jesus teaching the best kinds of enemies, you know, Jesus said, love your enemies, you know, surprise them uh, by not being hostile and by not being angry and pointing fingers all the time, but love and serve people who are suspicious of you or who may not have a positive view of your faith, you know, extend to them the same love that you've received from Christ when you were against him and go from there. And so, so the book is really an effort to help especially followers of Jesus, to, to live really well in the various areas of life that we live in, live, work, play, and so on. And hopefully it'll be an intriguing picture of Christianity to people who maybe are on the fence or skeptical or asking questions, or maybe they've kind of removed themselves from, from faith for a while and they're re-engaging the subject because it's a new year or something like that. So I hope it can have that kind of broad appeal, but we'll see. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting because, you know, even as you're talking, you're saying like the climate that we're in and the context that we're in. And I think, you know, it's likely that we would both be able to recognize that we are in such a knowledge-saturated world. So much knowledge and information, like this is the information age. And what it sounds like, and of what your book I have read, it sounds like you're saying, hey, the world doesn't need more knowledge. The world needs an understanding of a revelation of who Jesus is. And one of the best ways that you and I can do that is not just by what we know, but who we know and how we live in response to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, knowledge is is a starting point, but it's it's definitely not a... Uh, a destination, and it's definitely not a full description of what a robust, well-lived life is supposed to be. You know, you can you can have knowledge without love, and it's just it's just pride, and it's you know even the Bible talks about that—a knowledge that puffs up and a love that builds up. You know, when the Bible talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you know, presumably by 
having your mind be shaped by the the vision that the scriptures give us about God and humanity and salvation and loving the world and the future of history and where God's taking it and how we can be a part of it that's meant to that's meant to catapult us out into places where we live and where we work and where we play and serve the world as a life-giving presence you know the bible talks about Christians as being Christ's ambassadors or the aroma of Christ out in the world, even in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous speech that's ever been given. He, at the beginning of that message, Jesus says, you know, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're a city on a hill. Let your light shine before men so that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so our lives are essentially meant to be a pointer to the world, to a God who is beautiful and good and life-giving and who has an amazing adventure uh, for anybody who is uh, ready to get on board with a story bigger than themselves. Um, And he wants to change you and transform you and disrupt the unhealthy things about you in order to to make your life the the very best version of what, what it can be anchored to to Christ. And so we're not just meant to learn. We're, we're meant to, I mean, can you imagine somebody who goes to medical school and then they don't practice medicine? I mean, what, what a waste of, right. of a skill set, right? And, uh, you know, faith is the same. It's meant to be lived out and embodied. Yeah, absolutely. And so here's a question I have, because one of the, the, the context of the world that we live in today as North Americans, whether you're from Nashville, Vancouver, or a small city in like a rural town or prairies, is that we've now been exposed to a culture that is against Christianity or a, a culture where we can all discuss on the internet our different views and our challenges. And I think that's where a lot of doubt can come in, right? Like the enemy comes to Adam and Eve. The enemy comes to Jesus when he's tempted in Matthew 4 and says, well, you know, if you really are the son of God and if you are. And so there's this idea that the enemy wants to seek to undermine people's life and trust in Christ. And so my question is kind of twofold. Where do you see this happening in culture and how do you see that affecting followers of Jesus? I guess threefold. And how do we respond? Yeah, I see it happening in culture in a couple of ways. Uh, First, Jesus is unfairly held responsible for the misbehavior of some of his followers, Uh, right? And, you know, there's this famous quote attributed to Gandhi that Gandhi didn't actually say, but it's still a helpful statement. Gandhi is falsely attributed to saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ, okay? So he didn't say that, but if he did, he would have had a good point that we have a responsibility to represent the one for whom we are ambassadors in the world well, right? You know, the Great Commission, when when an authority commissions his or her followers to go do something, those followers are supposed to act on the authority's behalf and nothing else, right? And so we have struggled, you know, throughout history. You've got, um, you know, the Inquisitions, you've got people wrongly defending institutions like slavery and putting a Christian label on it, which is just absurd. You've got even more recently kind of the, the, the 
politically right-leaning moral majority movement of the 80s and the 90s, which have, you know, which is was just kind of an anti-movement, anti-gay, anti-abortion, anti-this, anti-that. It was just a kind of a posture of againstness. And then now you've got a climate where we're sort we've sort of inherited the the effects of that. And you know, we have essentially been discredited by our own behavior. But the the tragedy of that, and I also think the misfortune of that, is that's a very easy excuse not to engage with the claims of Christ over your life and over the whole world if you're a person who's not interested in belief or in faith. And that's tragic, because Jesus claims to be the king of the whole world. He backed it up by coming up from the grave. Uh, He lived a life of perfect integrity, of perfect truth, of perfect beauty, of perfect righteousness. And he says he's the, the only way that a person can be in a right relationship with God. And so that's that's a pretty ultimate question that is in some ways just kind of swiftly dismissed uh, in the same way that, that maybe somebody would say, well, I'm not I don't really like the music of of Mozart or or of, you know, you too, because because I heard a high school band play a U2 song and it was really sloppy. And so U2 must not be that good. Well, no, the high school band's not good. You know, the high school band is trying to play a great song that actually was given to the world by a great band. But you won't even listen to band play the song because of a, you know, and, and I think that that's an excuse that is is used to not for, for a lot of people to not engage the claims of Christ is that, you know, Christians themselves become kind of an easy scapegoat. But at the same time, Christians were responsible. I mean, we need to live better and love better than that. But I also think, too, that there are certain ethical points now uh, in the Christian message that are just on a direct collision course with the prevailing thought now, you know, in the West, at least for now, about things like marriage and sexuality, et cetera. You know, and you've got the whole Me Too movement. And I, I think the what's so curious to me about the Me Too movement is that, you know, rightly there's all this outrage and, and outspokenness against, you know, men exploiting women, using their power to exploit women. And yet only a year or so before the hashtag Me Too movement started, many of the same people who are putting, you know, hashtag Me Too out there on their Twitter feeds were the people who showed up at Hugh Hefner's funeral to eulogize him as a social justice champion and civil rights hero, right? And so so one year you're publicly celebrating the guy who actually gave us the climate where Me Too can easily happen. And now we're you know, not only rightly calling out sexual predators, which should be done, but we're also taking songs like Baby, It's Cold Outside, and we're saying, well, that's a song about date rape. Well, no, it's not. It's about a guy who's trying to whimsically seduce a woman into something consensual. It's not about date rape. I mean, trying to seduce somebody who's not your spouse, that's not a good thing. But right, that's a right. conversation. But we're, we're taking things like that and we're interpreting them to be something that they're not. And that's kind of the climate that we're in where where people get punished for things that maybe they're only 10% actually true. And the court of public opinion, I, I think, I think that, I think the Christians, because of our views, especially on, on historic, you know, biblical views of sexuality and marriage are now not only seen as, 
you know, weird in the way that we think, but and not only seen or viewed or thought of as wrong, but thought of as evil or dangerous um, even. And so the vision for flourishing is, you know, right now the Western vision for a flourishing human being is expressive individualism. I get to define myself. And no voice from the outside, no influence from the outside is allowed to define me. I get to define myself, and that's what freedom and flourishing is, which is in direct collision with with the gospel, which says, no, you are defined by the one who made you. You bear the image of God, and a life of flourishing can only be had and experienced to the degree that I'm acknowledging his kingship over over area crevice of my life. So I'm talking a lot. This no, is this, your is, podcast, this so. is great. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just going to like get some popcorn and just listen. It's amazing. Nah, I love, no, no, no. love what you're saying. And, and one of the questions that comes up from, for me is, you know, where is this, um, let's say, attack to use a word against Christian values, against Christian morals, against the the Christian biblical vision of human flourishing and the good life, where is that coming from? Like, why is our culture so against? I mean, you speak to individualism, but is it because the the claims of Christ, as he's spoken, God's vision of the good life for humanity is denial of self? And we, as a Western civilization, as a Western world, don't want that? Or, Or what have we contributed to this as followers of Christ? I'm really curious your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think you you just named it. Denial of self is is fundamental to life in Christ, and the actualization of self is fundamental to Western thinking right now. Self, it's not self denial, it's self actualization. It's not deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. It is deny my neighbor if I have to take up my comforts and follow my dreams. You know, that that's the creed of of the West right now, which is which is the polar opposite of of Christ's vision for flourishing and and being life giving presence in the world. So what's really interesting too is I think that what you've got happening now is and I'm no sociologist, this is just kind of an armchair observation that, you know, you have this moral majority movement, which was problematic, and it was led by people who identified as Christians in the 80s and the 90s, you know, blaming things like 9-11 on certain, quote-unquote, sinful groups of people, when, no, this was a group of people from another part of the world who didn't like America, and they decided to do something horrible. That's that's what it and of course there are demonic forces behind all kinds of violence including this one but for whatever reason that was used 9-11 was used as an occasion to start pointing fingers at all these you know groups that weren't on the side of the moral majority on certain more moral issues and you know that kind of posture like you know call it you know truth gone bad or truth you know conviction without love or or something like that you know, scolding people in the name of Christ, right? And rightly, very properly and very rightly, the children of that generation that that was all about that, you know, and that was co-opting their politics in with their faith, it was right for their children and grandchildren to react against that posture. But what I think's happened as a result is you've gotten not only the existence of doubt, but the, the glorification of skepticism and the glorification of, of unbelief. 
you know, G.K. Chesterton said that the, the purpose of an open mind is like an open mouth to eventually shut it on something solid. And like, like just an, an open mind for its own sake is just kind of silly. And so I think, I think we've kind of lost that, that the purpose of doubt and, and questioning is actually to get to answers. It's not to just sit in this whole world of doubt as if that's like a virtuous place to put our anchor in the ground, right? But I think what's happened is that that has shifted to a new kind of moral majority. And instead of the moral majority being on the religious right, it is now on the irreligious or non-religious left, where you have the same behavior. And this, this is where, and you know, maybe somebody who's you know, more of a skeptic might get a little bit upset with my words, and I'm just going to encourage you to hang in there with me on this. But Luke chapter 18, verse 9, describes an attitude. And it is an attitude that could easily have been applied to the moral majority movement in the 80s and the 90s. And, and it is, these are people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they looked down on other people with contempt. There's us against them thing. That was what was happening in the 80s and 90s. And that's precisely what's happening right now, except it's just coming from a different place. It's coming from, well, if you're not as tolerant and open-minded as we are, then we're going to shut you out and we're going to punish you. Well, that doesn't sound very tolerant or open-minded, but it's the human heart. And the human heart wants to separate, wants to tribalize, wants to declare who the good people and who the bad people are. And of course, we're the good people and those people are the bad people. And Christianity, the gospel, Jesus separates the world not between the good and the bad, but between the proud and the humble. And so we got to ask ourselves, what's the humble place? And maybe that's our starting point to build a different narrative and a different story around Christianity in the West. Right. Man, that picture, the word picture that you quoted with uh, G.K. Chesterton is, is great. My question is this, what would you say or how would you encourage somebody who's listening to this saying, yeah, I'm, you know, I want to make a difference in my life, or I have friends or people in my life that are really doubting and skeptical, or I'm overwhelmed at the current state of the culture that I'm in. How do I keep going forward? How do I pursue Christ faithfully? I'd just be curious what some of your words of either encouragement or challenge would be uh, to those of us. Yeah, I mean, wow, there's a lot of different things that could be said to those important questions, um, Ryan, and I, I think that a starting point is you've got to get around people who have that same burning in their their hearts for something different and new and counterculture, um, you know, in the best sort of way and in a life-giving sort of way, counterculture rather than just blending into this culture of outrage that we're in right now where everybody's just trying to figure out who their enemies are and who their tribe is so they can get on board with unfruitful ways of, of, of engagement, you got to have people around you. And I would be so bold as to say, you got to have a local church that you're committed to and that you're part of and that is a center point of your life and an anchor for your life. And that doesn't mean you got to find a church that pushes all your right, the right buttons for you. Hopefully it's going to be a church where some things irritate you a little bit, like the music isn't exactly what you wish it would be. Or maybe you're in a church situation where it's not just people from your generation, where you're in community, where you have to hear 
the opinions and viewpoints and the politics of, you know, if you're me from people who are older than me and younger than me, and I, I happen to be one of those Gen Xers who thinks everybody's an extremist, but me, right. <laughs> I think my, I think my baby boomer parents generation are right wing extremists. And I think my kids generation are left wing extremists. Yeah. And I don't know what I am. There's probably something wrong with me too. But you know, <laughs> my kids probably think I'm right wing and my parents think I'm left wing. But but you know, the point being is it is good to put yourself in a community where you don't get to pick all the members of your circle, right? I mean, because that's not how family works, right? You know, I mean, my wife, I tell people this, I tell my church this, my wife's been married to five different men and I've been all five of them, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm a different person now than I was eight years ago and I was different then than I was five years before that and so on. And even if you think you know what you're getting into, you don't, because we're always changing, and I'm going to change. But the point is, we grow and change and transform together, and a local church is a wonderful place to provide, number one, a life-giving focus on Jesus Christ. But realize, too, that one of the best things about a local church is that you don't get to custom-make it to your liking— and this is what troubles me about the Christian mindset of, well, I don't like church, or I, you know, I just haven't found a church that I you know, completely jive with. What you're saying is that you're going to make a custom-made version of your own you know, version of Christianity and church and community. And what happens is you end up just picking a bunch of people that look like you, that vote like you, they're the same age as you, they have your same level of education, make the same kind of money, probably the same skin color, you know, et cetera. And you don't really learn much. So we need that commonality of moving toward Christ together, and that's our common ground. But we also need that difference. The first community that God created was a man and a woman. It's hard to get any different than that biologically, right? But then he created a church and said, I want Jews and Gentiles to both be part of it. And I want them to have fellowship together. And Jews and Gentiles were different from each other ethnically, politically, ideologically, economically, culturally. They were different than each other. And Jesus said, look, this is what's going to show the world that you belong to me, that you, you know, Jews and Gentiles love each other. Yeah, I mean, the thought that comes to my mind is like, you know, waging war on the idea of the individual entitlement, the individual. And even as you were talking about, you know, being connected to a local church and being committed to a local church and not being able to pick all these things of what your church looks like, it reminded me of what we talked about 10 minutes ago, that the view of the good life to our culture is individualization and customization. And when you're in a local church, you can't just pick and choose and customize as you wish. You are forced to be ground up against people that are different than you. You're sitting in a chair or a pew and you're challenged or a guest speaker comes in that you're not used to. And so it sounds like to me that is uh, the call. So Scott, this has been great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of In Doubt with Scott Sauls. You can follow Scott Sauls on Instagram at Scott Sauls and on his website, scottsauls.com. And make sure you get a copy of his new book, Irresistible Faith, which is available January 22nd. InDoubt exists to bring the good news of Jesus into everyday issues of life, faith, and culture. We exist to help you and encourage you to engage with the tough questions of our time in a way that honors God. If you want to partner with us, we would love for that. And so you can go on to indoubt.ca if you're in Canada and indoubt.com if you're in the United States. 
Make sure you download our app and keep in touch with us on Instagram, Facebook. Our Instagram is indoubtca, and we would love to hear from you on topics you'd like for us to discuss. Email us at info at and stay connected with us for next week, where we have part one of our conversation with speaker and author of The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield. Doubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life, faith, and culture that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S. <laughs>